Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is More Than Conquerors by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, I, Father, I thank you that your word is living and active and Lord, I pray that it would be living and active to us today. Lord, your word and your actions are not separated. And so today, Lord, as we come around your word, we believe that there is supernatural power and action in your words. Father, today we open ourselves up and we ask you to speak to each one of us in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, we finish off uh, Romans chapter 8 today. And it's, it's interesting what the Holy Spirit does because I believe that uh, a large part of what I have to say today is the fact that God has set a destination for each one of us. He has guaranteed that he will get us there. In fact, the message of Romans 8 is that God has set a destination for us and he is giving us assurance that he will take us there. Today I want to talk to you about more than conquerors. And Paul kind of ends this chapter with a wonderful crescendo uh, and celebration. But... Uh, I, I believe it was the year 1948 and the then US President Harry Truman made a very important decision. He desegregated the US Navy. No longer were African Americans simply the cooks and the cleaners on US Navy ships, but every position was now open to them. He broke down the walls of racial segregation in the US Navy. Bold move, particularly in 1948. In that same year of 1948, there was an African-American man who enlisted in the US Navy and decided that he wanted to become a US Navy diver. That man's name was Carl Bruchier. Not spelt Bruchier, but pronounced Bruchier. And for those movie buffs that have watched Men of Honour with Cuba Gooding Jr., you will know the story of Carl Brashear. Carl Brashear enlisted in the US Navy in 1948. In that same year, he also enlisted in the US Navy Diving and Salvage School. First African-American to ever enlist in that school. Why would you want to be, if you were, if you were in the services, why would you want to be a diver and salvage? None of the divers ever got any recognition. None of the divers were listed in the, in the tributes of all the heroes of war. None of them. These guys, uh, uh, the movie highlights that the best these guys could hope for, the best glory they could hope for, would be to die 200 feet below the surface with their mate next to them. These guys were recovery experts. These guys would, would go to the bottom of the ocean and, and pick up what nobody else wanted and something that everybody else had lost. But, but Carl Brashear had a destination in mind, but he had a rocky path. <laughs> the moment he enlisted in the US Navy Diving and Salvage School, he was met with hostility. He was met with staunch racism. It was not uncommon for him to find notes on his pillow highlighting the fact that they were going to drown him that day and that the US Navy was no place for many, many, many swear words and an N-word that nobody should ever use. Every morning that Carl Brashear got up, he was hated by every single person that was around him. 
for every test and examination that he completed, he did so against the odds of what they had set against him. Everybody else had it easy. Carl Brashear had it difficult. But after six years in 1954, Carl Brashear graduated 16th out of 17 people and became a Navy diver and salvage operative. From 1954 to 1966, Carl Brashear completed many missions. He would He would dive to the bottom of the ocean and recover dead bodies. He would dive to the bottom of the ocean and and recover ammunition that was lost. And then in 1966, uh, uh, what they call the incident in Spain, uh, a nuclear bomb is lost. And Carl Brashear is sent to the bottom of the ocean to recover this nuclear bomb. He does so. He rigs up all the lines. He's standing on the deck as they finally bring this bomb to the surface. And for those that have watched the movie, you know that a line breaks. And as he quickly moves his mates out of the way. Oh, by the way, those ones that hated him, those ones that called him all those obscene names, he moved them out of the way as the line came and almost severed his leg. By the time they managed to fly him to a hospital in Spain, in a military base in Spain, they got him off the, hosp- they got him off the helicopter into the hospital and they pronounced him dead due to the amount of blood that he had lost. After much medical attention and many surgeries, he finally made the decision to amputate his leg, his left leg, below the knee. He spent many months of painful recovery in hospital and rehabilitation. Part of his testimony is he can remember running around the army base, telling nobody that when he took his prosthetic off, he would empty out puddles of blood, because if he told them, they would set back his rehabilitation. After many months of rehabilitation and finally feeling fit again, uh, he was met by a man that handed him his honourable discharge papers. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Here's your papers, son. Take a seat. Carl Brashear did not accept those papers. He tore them up. He opposed vehemently his discharge and demanded to be placed back onto the diving and salvage crew. The only way that he could do this was that he had to complete a number of tests. One of those was he would have to climb a ladder with weight plates hanging off his back. And for those that watch the movie, you will know that his final test was to be able to stand and take 12 steps with 300 pounds of weight in a suit. For those that watch the movie, you know he completed every one of those tests. He was reinstated back into active service. He is the first and only African-American man to be named Master Diver. And even further than that, he received, by the time he retired, he received the highest accolade of a Master Boatswain's Mate. Can't get any higher than that. Carl Brashear has a lesson for everybody here today. Carl Brashear is what you could call, in biblical terms, a conqueror. Carl Brashear is a man that was met with much opposition. Carl Brashear met fierce hostility, was persecuted simply because of the colour of his skin, but yet he had a destination in mind and nothing stopped him reaching there. Carl Brashear says it is not a sin to get knocked down, he says, but it is a sin to stay there. I don't think we really need a show of hands how many people in this room have been knocked down from time to time. How many people feel that life for them can sometimes be a little bit like Carl Brashear? How many people know that there's challenges in life? How many people know that there are setbacks 
in life. How many people know that things don't always work out the way that you want them, but God has set it for each one of us to be the Carl Brashears of the spiritual world. Those who are against all the odds are more than conquerors. You see, Carl Brashear decided that he wasn't just simply going to prevail, <laughs> he was going to triumph. I'm not just going to get back into service. I'm going to become the highest ranking Navy diver that you can possibly. There are people in this room today that need to stop listening to the voices, need to tear up those notes that are left on your pillow, and you need to hand back those discharge papers. The enemy would like to give you some discharge papers and tell you to take a seat. You see, being a Christian doesn't matter the enemy at all. If you're a Christian and you're happy to be sitting in your seat on Sunday, the the enemy's happy with that. The minute you take a stand for Jesus, you've just entered a realm of intense challenges and persecution. But I have good news for everybody in this room today. We're going to see that we are more than conquerors. Let's pick up Paul's words here. He says in verse 31 of chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things? And that these things are, of course, those things that that he's just mentioned. Uh, What shall we say in response to the fact that God decided beforehand to love us, for knowledge, or for love? Uh, What shall we say about a God who has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, not predestined to salvation, but predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What shall we say about a God that called us, justified us, and has promised a destination of glorification for us? What shall we say in light of all of these things? Uh, Now Paul has five questions. Paul has five questions, which in fact we can't answer. Um, Most men in the room go, I get asked questions by my wife all the time that I can't answer. And that's okay, that's part of being male. And Paul's got five questions now. But no one in this room can actually answer. First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let me pause for a moment. If I remove the first part of that question, I bet you most of us in this room here could could have a list a mile long. If I asked you simply, who is it that's against us? They're too wide and ten deep. That's not what Paul asked. Because every single one of us have people that are against us. We have, we have forces, challenges, storms of life that are against us. And that's not what Paul asked. Paul asked, if God is for us, then who is it that can be against us? That's the important part of the question. And I ask everybody in this room today, if God is for you, and the word for implies that he is actively acting on your behalf. God is for you, who can be against you? I can remember when I was in high school, uh, uh, my best friend in high school was a guy, uh, we fought adamantly three times. We, uh, after deciding that we couldn't defeat each other in a fist match, we decided it's probably just easier to be friends. This is, this is, we're not achieving anything here, let's just get over it. But it, uh, we used to kind of, all the grade 10s, we were in grade 10, and we used to kind of sit and have our, our recess on the lower bank of the school. And at the upper bank of the school, the grade 8s used to sit and have their recess and over a period of time, a game had broken out where we kind of throw things at each other, you know. We'd, we kind of finish our apple and throw the apple call at the grade eights. I remember one morning as I'm sitting there, one of the kids, Patrick, threw an apple core at Nick. Best shot I've seen. Took him out, man. Took in the, hit, 
all of a sudden, Nick's laying on the ground with an apple cooler all over the place. And I look up and here's Patrick dancing with glee. What a shot. <laughs> you see, Patrick was a, was a nerdy kind of a kid, but something different about Patrick. Patrick had a brother. And although Patrick was a nerdy kind of a kid, <laughs> you didn't mess with his brother. And the reason you didn't mess with his brother was his brother had another 10 guys that you didn't really want to mess with. Nick got up from his mess. He was infuriated. He was embarrassed. <laughs> so he chased Patrick around the school and roughed him up a bit against the wall. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, I'm thinking, this isn't going to end well. And before the bell goes for recess, we're all sitting in a huddle and all of a sudden everybody disappeared. And I've looked up to see 11 guys walking down the bank. I turned to Nick and said, I'll catch you later. <laughs> the sum hills aren't worth dying on. Uh, needless to say, Nick had a bad day, and just because I was in association, I had a bad day. And, you know, Patrick was nothing to be worried about. On his own, Patrick was... But because his brother was for him, he didn't mess with Patrick. Lesson learnt from that day on. And because of who it is that lives inside of you, the enemy has no place to mess with you. Exactly right, Simon. Jesus told the disciples, we are going to the other side. He didn't say we're going to get halfway, hit a storm and probably turn back. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I don't care what happens between here and the other side. We are going to the other side of the way. And for those that read the pastor's comments last week, you'll understand that Jesus made that journey just so that he could impact the life of a man that lived in the tombs cutting himself, a man by the name of Legion. If God is for us, who can be against us? This was the favourite verse of, a, of Martin Luther's best friend, Philip, I can't pronounce his last name very well, Philip Melanchthont was his name, and Luther would call him Philippus, and he was a very gentle man. In fact, Luther says, I am for the pulling up of stumps and the cutting down of thistles, but Philippus is for sowing and preparing the soil. And when the world was against Luther, Philippus was standing right there. And towards the end of his life, the secret of what kept Philippus standing by the side of Martin Luther was let out when, he's, when he said, you know, my favourite verse is Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, then who can possibly be? And there's a man that lived that. And uh, Martin Luther was his best friend. Martin Luther died three years before Philippus. But when Philippus died, they buried him on top of Martin Luther. They were such good friends. So I ask you this morning, if, if God is for you, if God is on your side, who is there that can be against you? What circumstance is there that will tear you down? Let's keep reading, because that's the first of four very wonderful questions. I, lo I love the next one. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want to ask everybody in this room today, if God did not hold back Jesus, his son, what is it that he is holding back from you? What is it that he will not graciously give you? Now, many of us are thinking Mercedes-Benz, five-bedroom mansion on the water, Holden Captiva. See, everybody, everybody knows that they come with a reputation. But 
If God is for us, who can be against us? And if God did not spare his son, then what is it that he's holding back? You see, God's actually not holding anything back. God, we will see that it's us that's holding back on God. And we have a misconception. We think that, okay, uh, God's not going to hold anything back, then he'll just give me everything I want. How many parents here give their children everything they want? We love our children, do we not? Some days I only like mine, but we love all of our children. Now, just because we don't give them everything we want doesn't mean we don't love them. In fact, it's for their good that we don't give them everything they want all the time. And, and sometimes that misconception, there's an there's a unweight in the scales simply because we have a misconception of God as our Father. Let me try and help you here if I can for a moment. Uh, if any, if your thinking in any way, shape or form paints the picture of God as your butler, you're in the wrong. If, if your theology says, I ring a bell of faith or I, may, I just have to say this, do this, whatever it is that rings the bell so that God will come to you and give you whatever you want, whenever you want, God is not your butler, God is your father. Sometimes... The best thing God can do for you as your father is to let you feel a little bit of uncomfort and pain. No amens. That's okay. I'm amening myself on the inside here because, you know, I I understand that. But uh, whereas God is our father, he's not holding back from us. Everything that he owns. Remember the, the parable of the prodigal son? You know, the older son comes because it's actually the parable of a father and two lost sons. And the other lost son, the elder one, he comes to his father and says, you know what, I've been here the whole time. You, you never killed a goat for me. We never had any dancing. You never let me invite my friends over. What was the father's response to the older brother? Everything I have is yours. I'm not holding out on you here, champ. Everything I am and everything I have has always been yours. I'm not holding back. If God did not spare his one and only son, what is it that he's holding back on us? Nothing. I love this next question. There's some people in this room this morning that need to answer this next question. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, God's elect is God's chosen, and we will deal with that word when we move into 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. But for now... Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, if I stop there right now, every single one of us are going to go, you know what? Yet again, pastor, the line's too wide and a hundred deep this time. There are that many people in my past that would happily bring charges against me, let alone the enemy that's always bringing charges against me. That's not what Paul asked. Paul has a ending to this question. Who is there that shall bring a charge against God's elect? Because it is God who justifies. And the saddest truth is that when it comes to who shall bring a charge against you, quite often we are the ones standing at the front of the line. But Carl Brashear had plenty of people that were bringing charges against him. Carl Brashear had plenty of notes left on his pillow. Carl Brashear had, Carl Brashear had officers above him that were adamantly opposed and were making sure he would never pass. There are principalities and powers right now that are attempting to make sure you do not succeed. And the greatest weapon the enemy has is to throw your past in your face. 
to throw your inadequacies, to throw your weaknesses, your insufficiencies in your face? The answer is Jesus. Because where we are insufficient, he is all sufficient. Where we are weak, he is strong. Where we are restless, he is our comfort. I, I can remember uh, when I was in the forestry, I had, I had 12 months of what can only be described as, it was hell for me. Uh, we, oh, I'm not blowing any trumpets here this morning, but we ran a forestry crew in Tasmania in the northeast, and we were the forestry crew in the northeast. We, were, we weren't planting hundreds of thousands of trees. We were planting millions of trees every year, and it was upsetting people's apple carts. Uh, other companies wanted us out of the northeast. They wanted us. Uh, uh, there was a huge change in those who were in charge of the company we were contracting for. Uh, and they wanted us out as well because we were poking holes in their management just by the way that we were doing stuff. Uh, and it turned out that phone call after phone call after phone call was just, you're not doing your job properly. Uh, you left a chip wrapper on the, uh, on the last coop you were at. Uh, you guys need better training. You're going too fast. Who do you think you are? We're not giving you any more work. You're not worth your money. And I made a very profound decision. And some people in this room probably need to hear this. There are people in your life you need to do this to, and there are certainly principalities and probably voices in our head we need to do this to. I decided I'm going to stop answering the phone. And I did. I stopped answering the phone. I used to have four guys travel with me in the ute. The phone would ring, 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 ring. You going to get that, Sean? Nah. No, I'm not going to answer. Uh, I can remember finally uh, somebody rang me on a different number. You know how they do that trick, right? Yeah. They rang me. I've been trying to get you for weeks, Sean. Oh. Well, I said, you know, if you ever want to catch me, just come out on site. Yeah, but we tried that and the gates were locked. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have intentionally, mistakenly done that. Uh, one lady who was my staunchest adversary, she wanted me out, this lady, no matter, right or wrong, she, she decided that she knew everything and I knew nothing and she, she decided she was going to come and see me one day. She even rang me as she was coming through the gate and she said, finally, Sean, the gate was unlocked. I'll be down to see you in a moment. <laughs> Two minutes later, I get a phone call, Sean, I'm bobbed. You reap what you sow. But you know what? After a period of time, the phone stopped ringing. I, I made a decision that if you want to get rid of me, you come and get rid of me. If you want to remove me off site, you come and remove me. In fact, they tried. Uh, one morning I turned up to work and my boss, my, my stepfather, and, and four of the people that were the hierarchy in the contracting that we were contracting for, they're all there waiting for me. <laughs> uh, and after an hour of my life that I'll never get back, I got on the motorbike and rode away. They said, where are you going? I said, to do something constructive. And the phone call stopped. And the reason they stopped was, you know what? I, I just made an intentional decision that I'm going to let my work speak for itself. And uh, I kept turning. I had every reason, you know, to just ring up and say, uh, stick your, sun your job where the sun don't shine. I had all the reasons to do that. But I also had... 20 guys that had families to feed. And each one of them said, you know, if you're not here tomorrow, we're not coming because we don't like anybody else here. Like, <laughs> and so we just continued to lock the gates and turn my phone off and we, we ended up having a great year. And 
I am sure this morning there are many people that would like to ring your phone. I'm sure there's many people that you, you may have hurt people in your past. You, you may have let people down in your past. You, all sorts of things you may have done in your past. Many people may have charges. The enemy may keep throwing all these accusations. <laughs> Hang up the phone, friends. Hang up the phone and, and pick up the voice that really speaks truth. Spend some time around the voice that's got some positive stuff to say about you. <laughs> We're going to get into some more of that positive stuff as we move forward. I love the next question. It kind of goes hand in hand with this one, but who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is there to condemn? Yet again, that list is very long, right? Condemnation is is the punishment befitting a course of action, but who is there to condemn? I love this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? I don't know who, for the two or three people that read the pastor's comments this morning, uh, I wrote about the movie Inception. Uh, for those movie buffs that have watched it, I haven't watched it for a very long time, and quite frankly, it confused me. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, yet again, did not get an Academy Award for that movie, so it's another one to add to the list, Leonardo. But anyway, it's an interesting movie where what happens is this guy is able to step into the dream world, <laughs> much like people used to work with in the forestry. But... <clears throat> Uh, what happens is he gets so deep, he's able to go down to the third or fourth genera- uh, dimension of dream world and he gets so deep into this that he can't, he can't really work out what's reality and what's dream world anymore. And for those that read the pastor's comments, he took a totem with him or a, or a spinning top and he would spin the top and if it stopped spinning, he knew he was in the real world and if it kept on spinning, he knew he was in the dream world. Many people have lost the totem. We're living in a culture today that doesn't know where they stand, doesn't know what reality is, and we are the ones that have hope. The greatest hope in the world is the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Who is there that condemn you? Christ Jesus was raised, who is at the right hand of God. You know, when, when Jesus ascended to the right hand, of, he completely and utterly did away with all politics. You can't do politics in church now because the greatest political statement in all of the universe was when Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father on high. What does that mean? (laughs) There's no power above me. No power. I am the supreme authority and voice on the planet. Who ascended to the right hand and indeed is interceding for us. Do you know Jesus is praying for you before the Father right now? Jesus tends to get his prayers answered. Who is there to condemn? I want to read you a passage because many people here are saying, yeah, but you don't know what I've done in the past. You don't know how much wrong I've done. I want to read you a very encouraging passage. I wasn't going to read this out, but I will now. The the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament saw a very beautiful thing that pertains to us. Back then, he had a vision of the then high priest Joshua. Listen what happened. Chapter 3 of Zechariah, if you're writing down notes, he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Throwing accusations. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Or is this not a burning stick plucked from the fire? That's beautiful language. Now, Joshua was standing there before the angel. This is where it gets really important now. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Got some good news for you. That's every one of us. 
Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This here in the nutshell is describing the gospel. Well, what's happening here is Joshua is standing there. Plenty of accusations are coming. What's the accuser saying? Have a look at this guy's garments. He's got more stains. Have a look at what's going Okay, let's get rid of the accuser for a moment. And now let's put my garments on him because that's what Jesus has done. For everyone in here. We all stand before God in filthy garments. Every single one of us. The message of the gospel is there is nothing you can do. No nappy sand, no nothing. It's going to get those babies out. But Jesus doesn't clean our garments. This is what I love. Jesus didn't come to scrub you up. Jesus came to clothe you in his garments. The beautiful picture of righteousness. Now we don't stand in these filthy garments. Jesus has taken them off us and he has put on us his robes of righteousness. There's nobody to condemn. Because of the completed work of Christ, there is nobody that can stand and condemn you. Let's go to the last question. Verse 35. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Every single one of them Paul experienced by the time he had written this letter, except the last one. What Paul is asking here is a question that we still can't answer. What is there on this planet? Who is there? What is there? What storm? What circumstance? We're even going to take this to the nth degree. What sin is there that will separate you from the love of Christ? None. Best news in the whole world. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And here, the reference point is to externals. And we make the mistake of measuring God's love or measuring Christ's love by what is happening to us externally. Well, if everything's going a little bit pear-shaped in my life, it must mean that God doesn't love me so much today. That's not what it means at all. The assurance that Paul wants everybody to have is that there is nothing in this physical world, universe, nothing in the spiritual world that can separate you from the love of Christ. You don't have to accept it, but there's nothing that can separate you from it. And here's why. The reason you can't be separated from the love of Christ is God's love is an intentional and deliberate choice. What that means is, because that's what foreknown means, that's what foreknowledge means. It's God's decision to love you. When when you didn't even have an interest in God, he decided he was going to love you. What that means is that God's love was never based on what it is that's inside of you. God's love was never based on anything around you. God's love was never based on anything you did or anything you could do or anything that was intrinsically inside of you. God decided to love you simply because he made a choice to love you. So therefore, nothing inside of you or outside of you can ever remove that love because it was never based on that in the first place. It sounds very corny and it sounds very Sunday school-ish, but there is no more profound statement than this. God loves you. God loves 
Every morning you wake up, you are loved by the creator of the universe. Not because of anything you did, not because of anything you haven't done, you are loved. Rick Warren beautifully highlights, I remember listening to a message that Rick Warren saying, he said, you know, he said, so often people come in and go, you know what, I, I, I just feel distant from God, I feel cold, I feel lukewarm, and, and maybe it's this or maybe it's that. He says, and I've heard a million excuses. He said, but they're all symptoms. He said, the reason we feel distant from God and the, the reason we are often so complacent and so lacking fervor isn't all of these external things. It's the one thing that we never grasp the full revelation of how much God loves us. He said, if we got a revelation of how much God loves us, he said, nothing would stop us reciprocating that love. He said, it would light a fire inside of us that could never burn out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or da- if you come to church naked, that's going to separate you from, from some love, <laughs> okay? And that's not the kind of nakedness Paul had in mind here. Um, so uh, we love you, but you must come closed. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. The climax. I love this verse. No, says Paul, nothing can separate you from the love of God. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. (laughs) We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And uh, that word love there is in the aorus tense and it is pointing back to an action that happened. When it says that it's God who justifies, who is there to bring a charge? God who justifies? That's the present tense. That means God is ever justifying you. Today, tomorrow, the next day, whatever it is you do wrong, God's justification is for today. This here is deliberately pointing back to a point in time because of Christ who loved us. And it's pointing back to the moment of the cross. The moment of the cross, we are more than conquerors, not because of our fantastic education. Praise God for that because I'm not great at school. Uh, We are more than conquerors, not because of anything that's inside of us. We are more than conquerors because of the fact that Christ loved us. Because at a point in time, Jesus won the victory for every single one of us. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with areas in your life, if, if, if you're thinking to yourself, I've just got to overcome, I've got good news for everybody in this room. Nobody in this room has to get the victory over anything. You don't have to get the victory over those addictions. You don't have to get victory over those attitudes. You don't have to get victory over any of those other things because Christ already has. What we're asked to do and what more than conquerors do is we head for that destination and we walk in that victory. If your theology sounds a little bit like Jesus has to come back to finish off the job on the enemy... However that fits into a framework of your theology, I have one question. What part of what happened at the cross was not a complete victory over the enemy? Complete and utter victory. And he knows it. Well, the enemy's number one task today is to keep this truth hidden from every single person in this room. He doesn't want you to know this. He doesn't want you to know that you don't have to get the victory, you just have to walk in it. 
We are more than conquerors, or literally, we are super conquerors. God has designed it that we would be the caliber shears of this world. Nothing will set us back. Nothing will knock us down. John Maxwell says that when he was uh, in college, John Maxwell said, I had a friend that was playing college football. He says, you know, John, he says, I'm never down. John says, what are you talking about? He says, we all have bad moments. We all get knocked down. He says, no, 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 no. He says, you don't understand. He says, I'm either up (laughs) or I'm getting up. John, he says, I'm never down. I'm going to read you the testimony of a man in the moment that he was either up or he was getting up. When I played AFL football, and one thing I've come to learn is, you know, one thing is inevitable in AFL football. You're going to get knocked down. I can remember playing a, 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 a rough bunch of, well, better term, bogans, but down at a place called St Mary's in Tasmania, I remember I was playing in the ruck this day and the guy who was in the ruck was this huge guy. He's about my height and he's about this wide, big guy. And I had it over him. When it came to jumping, I had it over him. I could easily leap over the top, punch the ball. But when it came to wrestling on the sidelines, I mean, this guy was throwing me around like a rag doll. And I can remember one time, uh, although I pretty much had the better of him all day, we were wrestling on the sideline. He went to punch the ball, completely missed and punched me square between the eyes. Uh, when I was laying on the ground, of course, um, and when the stars stopped circling, I'm standing there to this big guy trying to apologise to me. And number one thing you do in football is you don't show pain. Like, you know, you get up and you kind of, that didn't hurt, you know, you kind of, <laughs> so it, it, it's all, but man, half time, I had a headache. Whew, I felt like a train had hit me straight between the eyes. It wasn't, you're going to get knocked down. AFL players get knocked down. Some of the best AFL players get knocked down repeatedly. That's not the point. The point is, are they going to get back up? Good players get back up. Resilient players get back up. Rugby players, not so much. But AFL players, they get back up. And so often... Everything's going well in our Christian life until some, suddenly the, the breeze blows. You know, it's kind of like being out in a boat and everything's fine while the waters come. But then when the wind blows and the waves get up, we just drop our bundle and leave everything. I'm, I'm out of here. Resilience looks like, you know what? Blow all you like. Because <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to the other side. We are more than conquerors. Let's finish this chapter because it's a beautiful crescendo that Paul finishes with. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In fact, we have, the other way to understand that is we have the prevailing victory through him who loved us. You have the prevailing victory through the one who loved you at the point of the cross. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, now's the nine nors, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful way to finish one of the best chapters in Scripture. I want to read you the... If you think you've had a bad week, if, if you think you've had a bad day, whenever that happens to you, I want you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for me. 
And I'm just going to start halfway through. I'm going to start 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 21. It says, but what anybody else dares to, this is Paul speaking, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Now listen to the list. Think you're having a bad day? Have a listen to this guy. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And for those that come from Nimbin, that means something different. <laughs> Three times I was beaten with rods. Sorry, Barb, I had to slip that one in, though. <clears throat> Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I was adrift on the sea. <laughs> on frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, how can you possibly, how can you possibly hold to a prosperity gospel and read that chapter? If the prosperity gospel's got any weight, Paul wants his money back. None of that robbed Paul from heading towards the destination that God had called him to. God knew, Paul knew that God had called him to take the gospel message even to Rome and to Caesar. And that's exactly what he did just before they cut his head off for doing so. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll understand a man that decided he was going to Rome and on the way suffers shipwrecks, gets bitten by a snake. I mean, how many times, how many people would come to Paul and go, man, God's trying to tell you something. Yeah, God was trying to tell him something. Nothing will separate you from my love. You keep going. Never once does Paul say, I've decided to pack up my bat and ball and go home and play cricket by myself. Not once. For all those that hurt Paul, for all those that ran out on him, for all those that abandoned him, he says, I pray for them. Only once does he say, I've given up praying for these guys. That was Hymenaeus and Alexander. Two guys that had walked with Paul, loved Paul, left him, and then went about causing him much harm. He says, you know what, I've, I've stopped praying for these guys. But on his knees in tears, his greatest labour was amongst the churches. Often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What was Paul anxious about? What was Paul concerned about? He's concerned about all the churches he planted. He's concerned about the message of the gospel. He was concerned about what God had called him to do. Friends, the message of the end of Romans chapter 8 is we are more than conquerors. Because of the completed work of Christ, we are more than conquerors. And what is it that will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Some people in this room need to hear these words this morning. Just keep going. Just keep getting back up. 
You're going to get knocked down. That's not what the problem is. Let's get back up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is nothing in all of creation that will ever separate us from your immense love. And we are so undeserving of your love. Right here this morning as we sit in your presence, Lord, I pray right now that the Holy Spirit will place his finger on some people's hearts because there's people in this room that need to know you can just keep going. Father, I pray for strength. I pray for resilience. I pray, Lord, you keep every one of us. I pray, Lord, for each one of us to have a larger revelation of the person of Jesus Christ and your love for us. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus did not come to make us righteous. He came to be our righteousness. We now stand in his righteousness. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, just like Heather Stewart, he also glorified. That's the assurance every person in this room has. If... If you could sit down, and many of us did, but if you could sit down for any length of time and talk to Heather, you will understand that there was a God of divine providence that worked miracles in her life. Well, in the, in the, in the three years that I've known her, God worked tremendous miracles in her life. He was the God that, after many left turns, put her back right where she needed to be. Praise God. I thank him for that. I want to finish this morning as I ask the worship team to come back. I want to read you a story I I was going to try and remember it, but I couldn't remember it properly. I want to read you a story. I've read this story before, but I love this story. And when we're talking about divine providence, there's no better story to sum it up than this one. Marcel Sternberger was a methodical man of nearly 50 with bushy white hair, guileless brown eyes and the bouncing enthusiasm of a Zardus dancer of his native Hungary. He always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train from his suburban home to Woodside, New York, where he caught a subway into the city. On the morning of January 10, 1948, Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual. En route, he suddenly decided to visit Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. Accordingly, at Ozone Park, Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn, went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incredible story. The car was crowded, and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave, and I slipped into the empty place. I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer... I have the peculiar habit of analysing people's faces and I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian language newspaper and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II started. 
He had been put into a German labour battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew Debrecen quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment once occupied by his father, mother, brothers and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him calling Paskin Basky, Paskin Basky. That means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbours of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps. Paskin gave up all hope. After a, a few days... Too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman, here we go, whom I had met recently at the home of friends, had also been from Debrecen. She had been to Auschwitz... From there, she had been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked him what I hoped was a casual voice. Was your wife's name Maria? (laughs) He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. Later I learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, there was no one else at home and after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? (laughs) Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, then suddenly cried, this is Bella, this is Bella. And he began to mumble hysterically, seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria. 
who also sounded hysterical. I am sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I go to my wife. At first I thought I had better accompany Paskin, lest the men should faint from excitement. But I decided that this was a moment in which no strangers should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare and said goodbye. Bella Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, so electric, with suddenly released emotion that afterward neither he nor Maria could recall much about it. I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned grey, she said later. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house and it's my husband who comes towards me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know, that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much, I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever again befall. The providence has brought us together. He says simply, it was meant to be. Sceptical persons, Marcel goes on to say, sceptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Many of us have stories that may even sound similar to Bella Paskin. Many of us here, if we look over our own stories, probably have stories of God working in our lives. Many might attribute those events and circumstances in our lives to chance. Was it chance or did God intervene in your life? We're going to sing, and if you need prayer this morning, if the hand of heaven's knocking on your door, then the front is always open for us to pray with you. Let us pray as we finish this morning. Father, I thank you, for you are the hand of heaven that loved us when we were unlovable. That when we were your enemies, Jesus, you walked the hill of Calvary and you spilt your blood willingly for each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, that you are conforming us into the image of your Son. Thank you that you've called each one of us. Father, I ask today that each person in this room would lose the word chance out of their dictionary and in place of it put the word providence. Thank you, Father, for your providence in our lives. Thank you that you take care of us and thank you that all all things work together for our good. wonderful name of Jesus. We pray this morning. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.